0: This episode is brought to you by Revolver Studios, Portland's own homegrown recording studio and music production house, run by musicians for musicians, revolverstudios.org. This is the Portland Film Podcast, and I'm your host, Molly Silverstein. Today we begin a series of workshops recorded at the 2016 Portland Film Festival exploring the craft of screenwriting. First up is Leslie Dixon leading the Screenwriting 101 workshop. Drawing from her massive success as a Hollywood screenwriter with credits like Overboard, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Thomas Crown Affair, Freaky Friday, Hairspray, and Limitless, Leslie offers tips and tricks about how to write a compelling and memorable script. One quick note before we begin. You will notice brief pauses throughout the workshop as the audience asks questions, and also some of the language used during the workshop may not be suitable for young listeners. And now, here's Leslie Dixon.
1: My name is Leslie Dixon. I'm a screenwriter and a producer. I've had uh, 13 studio pictures made as a writer, and three or four more that I produced either as well or instead of, like when I wasn't the writer, Um, and those include... Things like Gone Girl and Limitless going backwards in order and Hairspray and Thomas Crown Affair and Mrs. Doubtfire and Overboard. And there's other ones. Um, but I've had a great ride off that train. Um, but one of the things we can talk about today, I think, is how much the business has changed. The sad thing is that everybody's salaries in my business across the board have gone down. Um, I... I'm not sure why. I think, frankly, we were all grossly overpaid for a long time, but also the studios were overpaid too because they were making all this money. What happened in the collapse, but they had this fantastic hedge. What kept prices high, it's kind of like the real estate market when interest rates are low, prices are high, right? Because if you can borrow more money and pay less mortgage payment, so then real estate prices can go up. You can afford a $700,000 house where before it would have been only a $500,000 house. Well, the studios had a tremendous hedge, just like low interest rates, which was DVD sales. Um, DVD sales could make an unprofitable picture profitable. I would say that even the couple of box office disappointments I've had have all made up their money and more in DVD sales, okay? Now, though, um, we as a guild have a very hard time policing or figuring out streaming. You know, it didn't exist when our last major contract negotiation happened. And um, with no physical disc to sell, there's something they have to pay us. But basically, residuals have had a big chunk taken out of them. And the studio doesn't really know either how how much they should charge to make their content available. And you can see why they don't know what they're doing in the flip-flopping of like, you know how things disappear from Netflix? You get this little thing that says, last week to see any movie by from Sony or, you know, whatever. And Sony doesn't like the amount of money they're getting from the streaming service and they decide to take their ball and go home for a while. Um, But DVD sales are never going to go back to what they were. People would rather, I know I would rather, uh, particularly if I can stream it to a big screen, which is now a thing you can do, I'd rather watch certain kinds of movies. I will always go to the... Okay, here's here's another thing. Let me backtrack just a second. Um, As part of knowing the marketplace is there's another thing know your audience okay and the way that you do that is by physically going to the movies okay when i say i like to stream things it's more weird little films that didn't come to your town let's say um or barely got a release or something you want to see again cuz you loved it so much um but if it's a new release spend the money go to like a saturday night show that's crowded and feel the crowd, feel how they react to things, feel, I think that there's some writing now, screenwriting, that takes place in a vacuum. It, it's an irony. I've had screenwriters say, oh, I'm so busy, I never go to the movies. I just catch up with stuff on, on Netflix. And I go, well, then, then you don't know how people are reacting to things, not just your work, but other people's work. If you see something that makes the audience howl with laughter or, or scream because it's so visceral... And you you get a sense of what is succeeding with a mass audience and what isn't. I mean, it seems so simple, but if it's just you in a room, and also laughter is contagious. If you're interested in writing comedy, go to comedies and see what makes people laugh, you know, because it's just, otherwise you're totally in a vacuum and it's a lonely enough profession without sitting in the middle of a crowd with your popcorn like everybody else. Um, It's also, it's fun too. It's more fun, but it's also a learning experience. And if you're... um, trying to write a script or somebody has optioned it, you can write off your movie tickets, guys. You can write them off. You can write off your travel to Los Angeles to meet with an agent. You can talk to your accountant about it, but I know it's true. Um, Okay, so where were we? If you get credit, residuals are attached to credit. It's rare that the first writer is rewritten so totally that they get no screen credit or it's reduced to story buy for which you get nothing. Uh Uh-uh. And credit is attached to your back-end bonus. So the way that a Hollywood contract works, if you were to sell something, is they say you get X amount against X amount, okay? There's an amount for the option and maybe a little thing built in there for different drafts if they're going to keep you on as a writer, um, which is subtracted from this big back-end bonus that you get if you get credit. And so let's say you get a deal that's 200 against 500. So you get Let's say a hundred thousand for the option and two fifty thousand dollar a piece, you know, polish or rewrite steps that they can trigger. All of which you get paid that money for. And then if it gets made and goes into production and you get sole credit, you would get, you know, five hundred thousand dollars minus two hundred, so you'd get three hundred thousand. And usually the amount if you have to share credit is half that, so you'd only get a hundred thousand. If you get story credit because you've really been rewritten had the shit rewritten out of you and there's almost nothing whatsoever, nothing of what you did, um, you get nothing. You get no back-end bonus and you get no residuals. And this is why writers are pitted against writers. It's unfortunate and write these statements saying, I deserve full credit because blah, and they just make up all this crazy shit. Um, and you as an arbiter, I've been an arbiter, you have to see past that. You really have to read the material and go, sorry Jack. Uh, that's all from the original script. Yes. No. They have nothing to say about what you do. They're just a union you're in, like a, like a steel workers union, you know, that has the normal things. You, and unfortunately, also the power to make you go on strike, because if you're in that union, you know, you have to support it if it goes out. But you can't just call them up and join. You have to have a deal to join. They won't let people in who aren't professional writers. So you, how much it costs to join, I do not know what the current figure is. But if you type that question into a search engine, it'll come up. I'm sort of remembering five grand from the old days. It's probably more now, but maybe not. Or maybe it's, it's a little lower depending on how low your deal is. Yes. Not necessarily. It depends on how charming you are. One of the things I'm going to talk about tomorrow is, and so I'm not going to get into like the, what you do. Okay. Now you've sold a script. Now what? Because that's, that's my whole tomorrow panel. It's, or even if you haven't sold a script but you're down there or you're meeting, you're at a film festival, you're somewhere where Hollywood professionals are, um, I'm going to talk about how to charm their pants off, okay? Because not being replaced as a writer often has to do with how much they like you <coughs> and how much they like working with you, okay? It seems like a simple concept, but a lot of people just either assume they're going to be rewritten um, not necessarily the case. Interestingly, I don't know why. I think there's some strategy involved, but some luck too. I've been rewritten less than any name writer I've ever met. Um, well, I mean, maybe not Steve Zalian and maybe not Aaron Sorkin because he probably has it in his contract that they can't um, rewrite him. But, but I honestly, I've seen an awful lot of my work get to this screen almost, almost verbatim. A lot. Thomas Crown, Hairspray. Um, my first film, Outrageous Fortune, uh, Limitless, I had it in my contract. They couldn't bring in another writer because that was made by a scrappy outside studio. And, uh, they agreed to my crazy deal and the deal I'm making with Amazon has that too, but it's really hard to get that. I mean, you have to be a little Mr. Hot shit, uh, to get that. Um, but we'll talk about how to behave around these people because there's sort of really serious rookie mistakes writers make um, when they're just starting to get some traction. Um, okay. There was another question. Okay. Okay. I'm going to come back pretty soon to like actually writing your script because I know that's super important to hear about, but I'm happy to talk about this too. You're going to have, if you're a professional, you will have an agent or a manager or possibly both. They are combing for, because there are less jobs, they're making less films, and the, some of the business is shifting over to the Amazons and Netflix and HBOs. Um, it is their business to be in business with all of those those providers. They want their clients to work. They are assiduously courting and being courted by those companies. Those companies are fairly new to the feature film business. Um, they need product. You know, if you ever have a choice between um you know a studio that has and it's something your agent should be able to tell you a massive lineup of movies all for you know coming out over the next year or just had something fall out and they definitely need a summer release and they're desperate for material that's the studio you want to make the deal with not the one that already has more stuff because then you know your thing might get made and netflix and amazon have a voracious appetite for material um so the so the agents are just all over it. They're not, you know, with their nose in the air, pretending it doesn't exist. But because there are there are many more jobs than there were, that's the good news. Because of, because who knew that someday cable wouldn't suck, you know? But now it's fantastic, and that's probably where the best writing is happening right now. Overall, unfortunately, the the money that you get for that is not two thousand and eight. It's two thousand and six, which was probably the apex of of writer's salaries. It won't be those kind of prices, but luckily the writer's guild minimums are there to protect you. It's something. And and compared to whatever you were doing before, it's probably a lot. Yes. 10%. It's a deduction also. Yes. Well, I'm not, I know quite a bit about it because my husband used to be a showrunner. I've never done it myself, because um, I didn't ever want to write for network TV. I just, you know, it's kind of lame, most of it, right? And, and there was a lot of money there if you created a TV show, but I just didn't need to do that. I was getting lots of feature work, and I kind of liked going from one project to the next, and I couldn't really get my head around inventing something that had to last for at least five years. You know, that's the name of that game, and I've always been about closed-end stories. And who knows, maybe someday I will. My agents have tried to get me to do it over and over again. But I'll probably leave the business before I do, you know. Um, it's just, I'm still just, you know, get, getting to do this. Um, even though I took two years off after Limitless because I was completely burned out, I'm still in there doing it. So... um You'll need to get like a TV writing panel. Maybe there is one. I haven't looked at the whole thing to talk about that and being a showrunner and what that's like and right a writer's room and being on the staff of a hit show and all that. And you know, that's what you, not me. Yes. Yes. Well, if you're a really bad screenwriter, you're going to have a really hard time doing that. Um, well, let's, that's the next thing that I want to talk about. So the, the last, I'll, I'll answer a version of your question and then let's talk about actually like writing your script. Um, basically, you guys have something at your disposal that did not exist when I got, I got in. And initially you do not have to go to LA until you have a product somebody has read and wants to meet with you. And then you have to spend a lot of time down there. You just do. But um, you have the internet and you have legitimate screenwriting contests. And you have Final Draft has one. Uh, Sundance has a great one. The Nichols Fellowship, which is sponsored by Disney. If you win or place in one of those contests, you'll get an agent or a manager. People, I mean, that's where Susanna Grant came from, who wrote Aaron Brockovich and won the freaking Oscar for her screenplay. She won the Nichols Fellowship. So, and before that, she was an unemployed, would-be actress in an unair conditioned basement apartment studio in New York City. Okay, so that's... Um, That would be what I would do right now. If I was living somewhere else, um, in the old days you had to go, you know, really try to charm people and network and finally find somebody who could give your script to some agent and then hopefully that agent would actually read it. Um, But now you've got these, you know, there'll be a lot of articles about these contests and you control them and find out what what the really legitimate ones are. And they do usually have a modest entry fee, but that's just to sort of cover the cost of doing it. It's, you know, it's like $35 or something. but I would go that route in a hot, hot heartbeat. Okay, so let, let's talk about writing your script a little bit. Um, I said yesterday, and it's true, that if your premise can be reduced to a log line and it sounds fun, um, and, and you, ha- you would have that on any cover letter of anything that you were going to show of yours to somebody is, here's my script. It's about. Da, 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 da. And um, it, it should be the most charming cover letter. The, mo- the more dry and your cover letter is, um, the l- less chance you have of somebody opening the script. My writing, I had a writing partner for my first script, which didn't get made. He was a very funny guy. And he went around to various agents. He was a cute guy. He was a cute 23-year-old guy. And he went around to various smaller agent's office because he knew no big agent would fall for this with our script. And he'd give it to the rece- flirt with the receptionist shamelessly. I think he even went out with one of them eventually. And, and he had on the front of the script a little card that he had taken from a florist, you know, where he, with little baby's breath and stuff on it that was blank that you would put on some flowers you would give to somebody. And it said, typed on a typewriter, Barry Berman, and then in parentheses, Jew, and that's what made this woman pick it up and read it. She just thought that was funny. Like that was his business card, you know, like hand-typed and then it says Jew. That's how he just he described himself. And she just thought that was funny. And she said, I'm going to give this thing 10 pages. And she became our agent and she sold it. So that's how I got in. So your cover letter, when somebody you're asking somebody to read your script, should have a log line of what it's about. And if you can reduce that to one sentence, okay, uh, because... I can brag about the logline of a couple of things um, I worked on because I didn't invent the story, but I recognized in the underlying material in the novel that it could be intriguingly, you know, reduced to a sentence, and it would be a good idea. Here's limitless: a loser schlub comes into possession of the ultimate smart pill. Okay, now you lose, you read that and you go, that sounds like fun, right? Okay, so that was the premise of the novel and that's why I wanted to adapt it. So if if your script can have something like that, it's really helpful. I mean, the rules are made to be broken and if you've written a great script and it cannot possibly be described, um, but the studios really like that high concept thing. They love it. Um, So that's the first thing is what is your script about and can it be reduced to a log line and can you write an amusing cover letter that would make the reader want to know you okay? You know, I'm sure you've gotten an email from a stranger one time, you go, God, I want to be friends with this person, they're so funny, you know? That's kind of what you want to do. You all don't want it to go on for paragraphs and paragraphs, you know, just a paragraph or two, but um, there's that. So what's your script about, and if you told somebody in one sentence what it, what it was about, and the person says, I would see that, you're on to something. You're on to something, okay? So, um, if you can possibly do that you know and it's hard it's hard because a lot of things have already been done but um if you start thinking about some very famous films um you know a young you know a psychiatrist tries to help a young boy who literally sees ghosts in the room with him well that's that's you know that's sixth sense and and uh these are, these are things that are intriguing when you would just see it boil down like that. And then I was also saying yesterday that you can actually, before you start writing, figure out whether you're on a good track or not by, you tell your friends you're working on a script, and if they really are your friends, they say, what's it about? Okay? And you could talk for about one minute. You could tell what the premise is and what the setup is, and then stop. And if they say, and then what happens? You've hit gold you know, if they, oh, that's a, you know, back to their whatever. But the, and then what happens question means, oh my God, you've hooked them. You've hooked them with what goes on in the first 20 pages of your story. What you are doing, and everybody knows this, is telling a story. And you're telling a story like you're sitting. Also, the people who are going to read it are either retarded or have ADHD. Okay it's really hard to get their attention past that cover letter. So you have to do, you have to make your first 10 pages impossible to put down. You don't have to explain everything. All you have to do is make the reader want to keep turning the pages. I I said this yesterday also, it's the only rule. It's the only rule. Yes, it's good to know what one act, two act, three act structure is, but that Reezy read because they hate reading scripts. They hate you before they know you for having written one, you know, and yet they have to. It's part of their job. They have to. So if, if you're lucky enough to get your script on the pile of some executive's weekend reading or some you know director or whatever, what about your script is going to make them keep reading? Because often what they think is, well, I'll give this piece of shit 10 pages. And Stacey Snyder, who is the president of, chairman now of Fox movies, everything, worked her way up through the ranks as an, as an executive and she was kind enough to come down to Chapman, which is a major film school, and I was on a panel there, and I've worked for Stacy several times. And she said, she talked about how hard it is, and she's a really diligent reader. I mean, she doesn't skim. That's part of what got her to where she is, is she really reads the scripts very thoughtfully. But she said that there was a script by some unknown writer with a challenging weird subject, and I wasn't going to read it except the reader coverage on it was really good, And she said, as I was reading it, it got lighter and lighter in my hands. I just kept going, oh, huh, hmm, phew. And before I knew it, it was over. And I said, yeah, how often do you have that experience? And she said, one in 500. So the good news is, if you can do that, if you can do that breezy read that makes them want to keep turning the pages, you will get found. You will stand out. Because most of us professionals can't do it. It's really hard. But, But no one told me that part. I'm instinctively kind of show Um, So I did have some instincts that my main job, your first job is to charm the reader. It's not a movie yet, you know? So, um, okay, what's it about? Do the test maybe with some friends and they go, oh, that sounds really bogus. Or you can still you can just tell when someone's eyes are glazing over, you know, that you're not doing the job. Um, but it can save you months and months of agony if you're thinking about writing a movie and no one would ever want to see it, Right. <laughs> We've all made this mistake. Trust me. Um, so that's number one and two. You know, marketplace. Uh, see what what's getting made, what isn't getting made. Um, they are. I'll say one more thing about the marketplace. They're very reluctant. Let me see what we're doing here. Oh. Is this a one hour panel? I don't know how long. Oh, it's an hour half. Good. Okay, we have lots of time. Um, I don't know. Um, they uh, the marketplace you know, it's always changing, but, um, there is a problem studios have with women's pictures. Um, and most women writers write women's stories. Okay. And, uh, it's not really sexist. It's just generally a female driven audience does not come thundering into the multiplex Friday night, you know, It takes its sweet time, and sometimes the thing has disappeared by the time you and Grandma decide to go see The Notebook together, you know? Um, It's really hard to get those kinds of movies launched. I mean, it was fine in the glory days of Julie Roberts because um, she wanted to do Erin Brockovich, and she was the biggest female star in Hollywood, so they said, okay. Um, But right now, if they couldn't get Jennifer Lawrence, they wouldn't make a movie like that because there's no female lead right now that draws on a Friday night. Okay, so if all you're writing is squishy mother-daughter stories, the chance of that getting made into a film is very low, you know. Um, If you did something a little more honest and edgy and R-rated, it could be made as an independent film. But if it's kind of like a Hallmark special, the studios won't make it. So as a female writer, you are challenged not to not tell women's stories, but if you really want to hedge your bets, and I'm not saying I like this, it's just the way it is, make a really strong male role as well as a strong female role in your movie. It, it makes the studios relax. Okay, so let's say that you've passed those two tests and you're going to write your script. Now, I asked this question yesterday, who likes spending an enormous amount of time by yourself? You need that. You need that. If you're a compulsively social person, um, it's going to be harder for you. You know, I'm an only child. I'm used to entertaining myself. So my mindset psychologically is really well-suited for that. And I find myself quite amusing. <laughs> so I sit there and chuckle to myself or whatever. You, it helps to enjoy yourself a little bit. And it helps to be able to entertain yourself when no one else is around. And then it also helps to be able to turn off the internet. Like give yourself a certain two, three-hour window where you don't check your email. It's really hard. Sometimes I can't even do it, but it's, it's good to do. Okay, and then I would say, I would say if you are starting out at this, you should make an outline, okay? Um, I have never done the thing of index cards on a bulletin board because what a lot of people do that for is to move around the order of scenes. I have this thing that if you can move around the order of scenes, then your story is arbitrary, right? Your, your story should be an arrow. You, if you do a story right, you shouldn't be able to take one scene and put it where another scene was. Because every scene would have meaning that led to the next scene. And by doing my scripts that way, I think that's contributed to me being rewritten less. Um, because when you, move, when you change this scene, that scene no longer makes sense, right? And when you change that scene, this thing, four scenes down the line no longer makes sense. I've always done a pretty tight plot. I believe in plot. I've had some movies made with very complicated plots. Um, And it's really okay to do a complicated plot as long as it's really clear. Okay? But I've never gotten rewritten on those movies. And I think because nobody but me knew how to take it all apart and put it back together. Think about the plot of Thomas Crown Affair, right? it's, It's got all these things going on that aren't what they seem. And then you find out what was really going on. And it all makes sense. Right? Well, it's not easy for other writers to come along and pick that apart and put it back together. Probably the worst that would happen to you on a script like that would be somebody else would do a dialogue polish. But if your plot stands, you'll get sole credit. So plot, you know, that isn't arbitrary where I don't think you should be able to switch the order of scenes around. Uh, if you can, you're probably doing something wrong. So I use just an outline. And then the other thing that I would say, and it took... I used to just slavishly follow that outline, you know, come hell or high water. And I do recommend doing this part of it, which is I would say I'm going to write a minimum of five pages a day, whether I feel like it or not. My uncle wrote a book once that was published and he said, I made myself write 10 pages a day and at the end I couldn't tell which days I'd been inspired and which days I was just forcing myself. Isn't that interesting? And that really stuck with me. And so I began to just force myself to write Monday through Friday, X number of pages. I might read them the next day and go, that's crap, and have to do them over. But there's an enormous satisfaction you feel, even if it's a rough draft, just getting that stuff on the page. So you just need that time that you go into an isolation chamber and and do it. Um, but you do feel good when you come out and you've done it. So what I would say about the outline was during the years that I slavishly followed the outline, oh, and by the way, sometimes the outline is harder to write than the script itself because you, you, you take your time writing that outline, you know, do the friend telling your friend what it's about test. Um, you could even perhaps have someone read it, you know, somebody you know, um, and, you know, hone that and then follow the outline. But what I will say is some of my earlier scripts had a slightly more mechanical feeling because they were all outlined so heavily and then I just executed the outline. I have now learned to recognize when something isn't working all of that well or a scene is just a little boring and I suddenly do something that wasn't planned at all. Okay? And you do need to keep a little corner of your mind open to inspiration. But it is it is Seven-part disipl- discipline to eight. the eighth-part inspiration. And sometimes you go, this is a boring character. I'm going to have her, she's a quiet, timid little mouse, and she couldn't be less interesting. I'm just going to have her jump out a window and kill herself, you know? And you weren't planning to do that, but any cheap trick that you, you can use to keep people interested in what's happening or shocked or amazed, or anything, use it. You know. So if your characters are boring you, they're definitely going to bore other people. The other thing I would say about that is flamboyant characters are better for your leads than an ordinary little mousy housewife who, in the fifties, who gathers the courage to leave her abusive husband. You know, eh? You know. Plus, a lot of movies like that have been made, and they don't ever do business. Um, but if you're, if you're hero is bipolar, like um, in Silver Linings' playbook, actors are going to want to play that part, right? Because they have a lot to do. They're on their meds, they're one way, they're off their meds, they're another way. Woohoo! hoo actors show off time. So the next thing is, if I were an actor, would I want to play this part or actress? And that really shakes you up because you suddenly realize, I've just written this reactive character. They're not driving the story. So a flamboyant character, even one with flaws is more likely to jump off the page and get an actor to want to play that part than somebody that's just representative of you or me, like normal people, okay? Because we go to the the movies to have a heightened experience, to see people do things that we would never get to do or experience weird things or deal with things we would never have to deal with, whether that's a typhoon or your kid being kidnapped or, you know, lots of things. Um, You know, Gone Girl, which I read in galleys and helped to produce... Um, I just couldn't put that book down, man. And it was in galleys and it hadn't been published. Um, but I knew it would make a good movie, um, uh, because of the way you flip the pages in the book, you know, it was all there already. You know, all you had to do was type it up. Um, I didn't write that movie, but I, you know, the, the writer of the book did, but, um, so flamboyant characters if possible. Um, and if you yourself have kind of a flamboyant personality, that's actually really good. You know, all those things your mom told you, like, you know, don't speak until you're spoken to and be really polite and don't talk too much. You know, don't interrupt people. La, la, la. Of no use whatsoever. Um, if you're, you know, you want your personality to jump off the page. And it also, we said this yesterday too, but writing with a specific actor or actress in mind also is helpful because sometimes they read the script and want to do it. Okay? Okay. So now you've outlined and now you are starting to write. And uh, you might be deviating from your outline in places. You might stop in the middle and go back and re-outline your third act. I this is this works for me. I am not suggesting that it, this works for anybody else. But what I do is I go back. I do I do generally think in an act structure even though it's not always exactly that way. But the by the end of the first act by like page 30 or 32 or so, Your premise should be established. Your hero or heroine should be really trying to do something or escape from something, you know. Um, And it should be clear and we should be very engaged and worried about what's going to happen. And usually somewhere in there, something really dire or funny or extreme happens that really kicks off the rest of your plot, okay. And that is why I write and rewrite the first 30 pages a zillion times before I go on to the next um, I've just learned that once I feel that my first act is a, sol- it's like the phases of a rocket, right? They drop away, but the, the one launches you and then the next one gets you here. And the third one takes you to the planet. Okay. That first propulsion that makes your script take off, that first 30 pages is, is, is the most important because that's the one that they're either going to keep reading or they're not. Right. Um, so those need to be super entertaining, taught. You know, no dialogue scene should go on for more than three pages. And if it is three pages, it should be a hell of an argument over something quite profound. It can't just be people, nobody should be happy. Tension is the thing. You know, you ask yourself in every scene, what's wrong for my character? What's, what's not working? Why are they desperate? Why are they scared? Why are they, you know, something? What's wrong? Because if scenes, if there's scenes where everything's going right, you don't have any dramatic tension. They nothing should go right till the very last scene if indeed you're even doing a happy ending.
0: Thanks for listening to the Portland Film Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue our screenwriting series from the 2016 Portland Film Festival with part two of Leslie Dixon leading the Screenwriting 101 workshop. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at theportlandfilmpodcast.com. The Portland Film Podcast is a Portland Film Festival production produced and edited by Misty Eddy. Our associate producer is Sean Connolly, sound engineer Paul Dillon, and I'm Molly Silverstein. See you next time.